the latest COVID variant B, nicknamed Kraken XBB 1.5. CNET is using AI to write financial explainers nearly 75 times since November. ChatGPT can be used to detect early Alzheimer's. The companion piece to this is that people are using AI to pass the medical licensing interesting exam. The latest variant of COVID or the newest version of AI, which will be more disruptive to you and the world. I'm Jack Wayne, and as an Australian scientist and professor, I spend a lot of my time talking and thinking about science, technology, and education in my day job, and also in my spare time on my YouTube channel, BioLab Collective. Like everyone else in the world, I've started a podcast. These podcasts aren't designed to be explainers or science lessons, and in fact, you might hear us say it's not my area. Quite often, podcasts will explore all the weird and wonderful topics in science, tech, and education, and try to find a thread that binds them all. The crossover connections. All right, so you feeling comfortable? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. You're feeling good? All right, yeah. so I mean, I do this all the time. I, I make all these videos and I don't really do podcasting, but I've been invited to a lot of podcasts. It's not comfortable in the, in the beginning, so hopefully it gets a little less awkward <laughs> for you. That's uh, right. Seats are right, mics yeah, are not too in your face. Yeah. All the podcasts have these scary microphones in your face, but you know, you kind of feel pretty powerful behind it, right? It gives you the sense like this <laughs> Getting a power trip right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah you get like a sense of authority. <laughs> Hi, everyone, welcome to Crossover Connections. This is episode one of our podcast. We talk about science, technology, and education, how everything is connected. Hopefully you've seen me on the channel before, but if it's your first time, my name is Jack Wang. I'm a scientist and microbiologist and professor based in Australia. And my co-host today is Amanda. Hi, uh, pleasure to be here, Jack. Thanks for having me on. My background is that I have a PhD in cell biology and I currently work as a manager of clinical research. Yeah, and a complete noob to podcasts, although I'm a complete noob as well. Absolute yeah. newbie to podcasting. But, but maybe to video as well, right? So yeah, that's is, right. For those of you who are listening in the audio format, we're filming everything and putting it on the YouTube channel as well. So this is the first time that we're doing this. And the motivation for why I'm starting a podcast, because uh, I, I do have a full-time job. I'm an academic. Why am I doing this podcasting thing? There's not much money to be made, if any money to be made, right? I don't think any money's coming coming out of this. <laughs> uh, the, the reason I'm doing this is that it's a really useful professional development exercise, because last year I was invited to join a panel to talk about science to the general public. Uh, and it was in the context of kind of like a comedy show. And I was asked to be on that. And they were talking about science headlines, like, well, it's obvious you should know that this jellyfish was found doing this strange thing and I'm like, I don't know any of this and it was a game and my team lost obviously because I didn't know anything my area of expertise is microbiology which is like a pretty specific niche it turns out I didn't think it was but apparently it is and I left that feeling just really dumb like hey I don't know anything about that much outside of what I work on you know look I, I think to be fair it would be every scientist worst nightmare no you think so yeah. to be honest yeah well, there was another scientist on the panel I don't want to throw her under the bus I think she did really well. Oh, okay. she, I think yeah. she did yeah. better than I did, but she was also breathing a sigh of relief when it's done because, you know, we don't want to be exposed, right? <laughs> don't know That's right. Yeah. So, so look, the format of the show is uh, we're going to go through, hopefully do this a couple of times a month, and we'll look at the latest science headlines that are grabbing our attention and are seeming to gain some traction in the mainstream mm -hmm. media. And we're just mm -hmm. going to talk about it, look at it, see how it's presented. We're not looking at the pure primary research article. We're not looking at graphs, figures. We're looking at what the media has decided is a good way of presenting this information to the general public hopefully that that filter they put on it is one that is positive is accurate is relatable but also maybe it's easy for us to understand how it's connected to our work and it's not just about our areas of science so amanda your area is uh, cell biology so yeah that's right yeah okay so for those of you that that don't know cell biology is 
applicable to almost everything and it overlaps with other disciplines like biochemistry, <laughs> molecular, right. biology, molecular biology, uh, genetics, mm-hmm. bioinformatics yep. as well. And microbiologists like to think we're the center of the universe. So microbiology is, of course, connected to every of these biological disciplines. So hopefully there's enough there for us to look at and talk about in mm-hmm. the realm of science. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anything to do with technology and education and those overlapping themes is kind of the focus of what we like to talk about. So onto the first headline is an article posted on The Conversation, although it's not hard to find. And it is, of course, about COVID, with the latest COVID variant being nicknamed Kraken, XBB 1.5. And essentially, the gist of all these articles is going to be, hey, this new variant is somewhere in the world or everywhere in the world or (laughs) it's about to enter your country or it's not yet about to enter your country things that are very specific that may be a little lost on people who don't know the molecular virology behind things the sort of threshold of information's changed during covid so yeah yeah that's um, the one very minor mm, um, mm, silver lining and all the the doom and gloom someone's been really excited to name this i think it sounds like a nerd it sounds like a nerdy scientist (laughs) not a polished pr person it sounds like a nerdy scientist did it and i mean someone's gotten really excited really excited and and look i'm a nerd like i that's great i would have named it something yeah yeah. you gotta (laughs) instill some feeling behind it from reading the article maybe it sounds a bit more terrifying than it actually is so well that, that's the pitch of it right mm. so so let's break down how new variants are typically presented to mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. so they talk about its relationship to another variant or strain that mm-hmm. people have heard of recently say yeah. delta or omicron and then it presents this very common thing where, where it shows in this case it talks about mutations and first of all people might not know what a mutation necessarily is. Maybe if you read comic books and X-Men and you kind of get the idea there's like some something changing the DNA. They put this kind of naming system. It's a S486P mutation in a specific protein called the spike protein. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's a letter and a series of numbers and another letter. Now, if I was someone in the general public, that wouldn't make much sense to me at all. No, it wouldn't. Right? It so, wouldn't. I mean, maybe there's a, little, there's a little bit more of an understanding out there, you know, understanding of mutations and what it could mean. You know, in this case, we're talking about a change in the protein that may render the virus more infectious or not able to be detected as well by the immune system mm. or, you know, change, changes like that. But this article was in the conversation, was it? Or Yeah, that's right. So it's basically mm. a conversation. Mm. It's got a scary purple diagram of, of COVID. The conversation does tend to delve a little bit more into the science um, when they're writing the article because they're choosing uh, usually it's uh, university professors and experts in the field yeah. to, yeah, to write these it's, articles. It's really great actually um, yeah we backtrack a little mm. bit uh, because we don't know who will be listening to this hopefully it's professors <laughs> exclusively only professors but uh, just my boss <laughs> maybe just your boss or, my, or my, my boss, boss. <laughs> my boss's boss or our boss's boss yeah that's DNA right. is made up uh, fundamentally of bases A, T, G and C and those bases are configured to form proteins and proteins are made up of individual amino acids so when they give you this kind of naming system to say it's s486p two letters represent different amino acids there's about 20 different variants depending on how you measure that of amino acids Mm -hmm. so the 486 refers to not like how infectious it is 486 refers to the position in that sequence so the 486th amino acid in that string of amino acids has been mutated right. from an S to a P. So in that particular protein that they're talking so about. So this which, is use, yeah. very useful for, for scientists. Mm. Yes. Right? So we know, oh, absolutely. We pinpoint yeah. exactly what has changed. That's right. right. Mm. But almost completely useless to a news 
agency, right? That gives you no value judgment on mm-hmm, the things people mm-hmm. care about, which is yeah. is it going to be uh, more infectious? Is it going to be more lethal, right? And that doesn't tell you anything about that. I think uh, if you say these days, if you say a mutation in the spike protein, that you know that's something that's just quite understandable mm. um, by the general public. They understand sort of the significance of the spike protein. Delving into the details of the specific amino acid changes is probably not not really necessary. What are they saying about the? Uh, how bad they think this variant will be. Well, this is where the the caveat train arrives because there's no quicker way than to look like a fool, a very well-educated fool, <laughs> to go on Disclaimer. some kind of yep. online yep. platform mm-hmm. to proclaim something about the latest strain of COVID. Either it's the end of the world or it's nothing. That's right. You have to do this and do yep. that and whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, that's mm-hmm. the quickest way because the evolutionary pressure on this virus, given that it's spread globally that's right yeah is so extreme that it's it's pace is just way quicker than anything we can project forward mm-hmm. and we are mm-hmm. just historically we as in humans are just historically bad at making predictions about mm-hmm. any kinds of things with that caveat aside currently it seems like the kraken is uh, i think the article says more bark than bind i think is a phrasing they use oh okay and yep. that mm-hmm. it's not necessarily more infectious than the previous omicron variant and it's in terms of lethality globally is is uh, maybe the, the same or a little less than the previous variant i mean i, I recently caught COVID. i don't know what variant it is, so did I, I actually yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. it was my second time the first mm. time i was bedridden for a, a week and then all the usual things would have rehashed us but yeah i lost my sense of taste uh and smell for, for a month i had a sort of quite debilitating cough for a couple of months and that, that was pretty bad. Uh, but this time it was kind of like a day and uh, kind right, of recovered. Yeah. Right. But, but mm-hmm. I'm not hopefully in the immune compromised uh, population. You caught it recently as well? Recently, yeah. I had actually had the flu three weeks prior. So it was a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah. It was probably a bit run down. And uh, all of a sudden I, I had this feeling that uh, something wasn't quite right. I felt like it came on really suddenly mm-hmm. out in the in the chilled section of the supermarket and, and suddenly sort of uh, felt like I was developing those body aches, came came straight home and uh, tested myself and immediate positive on my rat test. Right. I think I was actually starting to think I wasn't going to catch it because I've managed to evade it uh, so far, but uh, but wasn't the case. It, it was not too bad, not didn't too have super high fever. Uh, in my case, the influenza was was worse. Like you said, I developed a cough as well that just kind of hung around for a long time. I think I was lucky to have not too severe of a case, mm. uh, which is which is not the case for everyone. So the first time you had COVID was was worse. Than... It, it was it was much worse, and I could distinctly tell it was different than mm. other mm. things I've caught: yeah. cold, flu. Yeah. I'm triple vaxxed. For yeah. whatever that's worth at this point. Yeah, right? me too, and right? I'm sure it would have been worse mm-hmm. if we hadn't been. Mm. And also it's not out of the realm of possibility that we might develop long COVID at some point with lingering symptoms that are kind of unpredictable because yeah, it yeah. essentially triggers all sorts of autoimmunity. Mm. And I, I don't think there's a good grasp on exactly what long COVID is. And also how variable it is. Again, we're not in the prediction business in this in this sphere. It's just so wildly changing. Yeah, absolutely. which brings me back to this idea where evolutionary pressure on the virus when it's spread globally. It's not like a local epidemic. It's very much a global pandemic. Right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, the virus from an evolutionary perspective, uh, I mean, this is more your area of expertise, mm-hmm. you know, wants to be able to spread if it made people too sick, uh, that would be inhibiting its ability to spread, not in its in the virus's best interest, so to speak. They were predicting early on, I guess, in the pandemic that it may eventually just kind of 
mutate itself to a very mild disease. So it'll be interesting to see. Again, those, those people are now scalps <laughs> on the wall of some online blogger. Like, you, you fool. I don't know. Yeah. All your credentials and education, you made all these wrong predictions. Yeah. But essentially, this is what I tell my students all the time. Mm. Microbes, whether they be bacterial mm. or pathogens or viruses, they've got no agenda other than just to replicate. That's right. But that's yeah. their, their sole agenda. So if anything they're, they're doing compromises that in some way, mm -hmm. then natural selection where the ones that are more favored to spread without killing the host, because if you kill the host... How's it going to spread? How's it going right. to spread? Yeah. People yeah. are going to go near a, mm -hmm. a dead person, but mm -hmm. they'll get near people on buses and coughs and that kind of stuff. Hopefully this is the eventual shift mm -hmm. towards mm -hmm. our thinking. Again, who knows? We're not in the prediction business of COVID. No. no that's a bad I don't want to be. be. No. I don't want to be. Speaking of poor predictions, let's move on to the next headline, which is around, I guess, the whole healthcare sector, really, but specifically drug companies' ability to predict how much of a drug is going to be in demand mm -hmm. and also how their supply chain can react to sudden fluctuations right. in demand. Yeah. Now, normally, this is not something that happens too aggressively because certain conditions and illnesses they don't really spike unless they're infectious, right? Mm -hmm. So there were, of course, shortages of the vaccine. There, of course, That's there were right. shortages yep. of antivirals and yep. antibiotics, all that kind of stuff. That makes mm -hmm. sense. Infectious stuff spreads up and down. But That's right. when we're talking about kind of chronic illnesses, mm -hmm. things like diabetes, mm -hmm. you wouldn't expect there to be a sudden explosion of diabetes and the anti-diabetic drugs to all of a sudden need like a quadruple, tenfold increase yep. in demand, right? Which is exactly mm -hmm. what's happened here mm -hmm. where the drug Ozempic, uh, which is... A once a week injection that people with type 2 diabetes could take as an alternative to insulin, which is very right, common yeah. for mm -hmm, type 2 diabetes mm -hmm. because their blood sugar is going to sort of keep going up and up and it goes up and down really crazily in response to different things that they eat. Again, insulin has a lot of other crossover effects that are difficult to manage on a day to day basis. So some people say Ozempic, uh, some diabetics say that Ozempic is a much more, um, once they get used to it, a much more manageable, more stable kind of... Uh, yeah, it sounds, it sounds really good. So the headline is that there's a huge short, a shortage of this drug. Mm. And again, it could be for a number of reasons, but it doesn't appear to be a spike in a number of type 2 diabetics in, in Australia. So this article was Australian specific, but I believe the shortage extends beyond Australia, right? Because all these... Well, right. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Very few of these drug companies are... are Mm -hmm. local to Australia. That's right, yeah. they're, they're all based very few yeah us europe mm. okay there's a huge shortage and uh, it's gone to a point where um, a number of governing bodies have had to make official announcements about this right like that's when that's when you know it's bad like when you've got yeah, official press right. releases yeah. from yeah. in australia the tga the therapeutics goods administration yeah, yes. TGA, yep mm. uh, and so so this is what they're saying they're saying the reason that it's a short supply is because of off-label prescriptions and you work with clinical research and clinical trials mm. so you probably know this a bit more than me what do you think they mean by off-label prescription so basically prescribed for uh, not what it's indicated to be used for treating essentially which my understanding in australia at least is not there's no legal uh, issue mm -hmm. with off-label prescribing right. but i guess you want to keep in mind that perhaps the the science or the research behind off-label prescribing may not be as rigorous as as for on-label right. prescribing. Right, because um, you have to actually go through the trials, right? That's, and, yeah, and, that's and, right. Yeah. So it's a case where I think during the clinical trial they actually 
saw a secondary effect of weight loss. Mm. So something that that was seen during its, you know, when it was being trialled for its its initial um, indication for treatment. But now it's just been, uh, I guess, kind of hijacked by social media. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think it's come about because mm. online clout and they're mm-hmm. bragging that they've lost all this weight right. and, and mm. the influencer game. Uh, I'm also on TikTok. I'm, I'm very, very small following. <laughs> and I, I couldn't influence a giant drug company supply chain. <laughs> Let's just lower everyone's expectations here. The thing that with TikTok in particular is that you can't predict who's going to see your video. Like the other mm. platforms, there's more of a rhyme or reason to it. Like you can't... You've had know. personal experience with that. You mentioned that it's just... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so very I, unpredictable. Yeah, yeah. So I, I had uh, I had I made two videos back to back on TikTok. Mm. They're both about really nerdy specific things for my students. Like they're about how to make a protein gel, right? Mm. And to me, there were I've showed a lot of people. The, I talk about this at conferences. Mm-hmm. Two videos almost identical, and one had thirty two thousand views, which again is not that much. Mm-hmm. Single things, but and the other one had three hundred views. I just mm-hmm. want to budge, but qualitatively they're identical like we've done all these analyses to say hey how how many cuts are there is yep. like is my yep. face on it too much or is the music different or how, like, how long is a tiktok clip at that time there mm. was a limitation of one minute so one you minute. can't make it longer than one minute and right. it's not the cinemascope 16 by 9 ratio yep. that we watch our movies in or yep. 21 by 9 however you want to see it. it's the 9 by 16 vertical right. video right uh, and so it's designed to be like on the phone casually so yeah. it, it auto scrolls for you right so it goes to the next sure. one for you I just think of you know a student cramming for their exam they got, I've only got one minute to learn this yeah, <laughs> any yeah. longer is going to be an issue but I can dedicate one minute to learning this uh, this no. fundamental skill All right. and, that and, I'll need in, in the research laboratory <laughs> and, but the thing is like the, the algorithm rewards a rewatch so right. the feature is that you make a loop mm-hmm. where the last clip you play mm-hmm. is the same the same as the first clip you play or the last word you say follows on from like it's like a palindrome of sorts. Oh, okay. So then when you when you rewatch it, you mm. d- don't quite notice that it's looping because it just seems like I'm saying the same sentence, you know? Like so so, okay. so you're kind of designed to make a essentially a visual and acoustic palindrome so that in a minute you you're watching for like five minutes without realizing it. Oh you know? right. It, okay. It I, d- I didn't realize that. Okay. Right. So if you can yeah. if you can do that then mm. I think that's what the algorithm well, is. Tri- tricking you into learning about <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but I've had students tell me like the I made like a ten minute video on PCO and mm. there was a one minute TikTok and mm. the students are I found the one minute TikTok more useful. So who knows? Like this is oh, a brave okay. new world. Right. Who knows? All that's to say it has just this incredible influence in a very opaque black box mm-hmm. way like it's reaching people yep. and fitness or lifestyle influences have said right, that yep. this drug going off label has mm-hmm. the drastic weight loss they look and feel great mm-hmm. and then kind of people are either asking the doctors about it more and or doctors are recommending it. well i'm not sure what combination it is it would probably be at the gp probably, probably yeah. a bit of both the question for me is there's no laws against it right mm. presumably mm. in this case it's it's pretty safe otherwise we'd be hearing not yeah. just about the supply shortage but yeah. about all the people who are suffering severe side effects well i mean the, the one thing about being approved for use for whatever indication is that it is known to be safe based on current best research that is known to be safe and so then an off-label use is sort of an easier segue to make rather than something that's you you can't just prescribe something that hasn't been um, approved i guess the question then becomes who is the who is the patient base that are being prescribed this Mm. are we are we talking about severely overweight patients who have other chronic health issues and and need this are we talking about people who don't really need the drug and are sort of 
you know, trying to get their hands on it for, for weight loss. Yeah, and the closest parallel I can think of, which is on a different level, but it's mm. the whole gluten-free craze, right, where there are genuine people who are, who are celiac, who mm-hmm. if they have gluten, their whole mm. insides get inflamed and it's they just feel terrible mm-hmm. and they, mm-hmm. they just legitimately can't do it mm. versus those of us who maybe like to eat gluten-free breads or gluten-free mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Because we just feel like a little less bloaty, you mm-hmm. know, a little bit more energetic mm-hmm. and it's a little healthier. And if you really want to dive into the weeds in that area or clinical diagnosis, pretty much after Crohn's and celiac, which is like a very specific serotype based diagnostic tests, all of the other misery that is irritable mm-hmm. bowel syndrome mm-hmm. and irritable bowel disease mm-hmm. is really hard to reproducibly diagnose, right? Yeah, it's, so it's its own kind of worms. It, yeah. so, so it's a mm-hmm. huge can of worms and, and people with all sorts of legitimate gut issues, mm-hmm. they can't get a proper diagnosis for it and they find that eating gluten-free mm-hmm. exclusively mm-hmm. or going pure vegan or, mm-hmm. or, or going full paleo, that's kind of fixed a lot of the issues that they're facing day to day but then if the supply chain isn't there to mass produce gluten-free goods which i think it is very much ever, <laughs> it's a very much very, very much, much so, yeah very much so because i mean there's money to be made right so it makes sense yeah that's right so, so much more than there used to be I've there's, had a... there's, there's a lag but yeah. there have been a few years where people with uh, celiac diagnosable gut issues who can't eat gluten were mm. really suffering. I, I had a close friend growing up who was celiac and just the availability of, of goods is so different to what's available now. I mean, you can you can go and buy a gluten-free donut. That just, that wasn't a thing. Yeah, um, it's everywhere, right? That's yeah. a chain that popped up in Australia. Gluten-free bread wasn't that widely available. Lunches yes. were rice cakes. Corn thins were a new addition. A uh, couple. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that was the exciting new, uh, right. new addition to the sandwich realm. This is a, a supermarket based problem. Mm, right? That's right. Whereas we're talking about like a clinical problem right. with like prescription Much drugs more on a severe scale. Or, yeah. or, or mm. Chronic illnesses. Mm. So at the end of the day, there's no legislating around this. Mm. Drug companies and big pharma are always criticized for their greedy, capitalistic mindset. Yeah, it, it sounds like they just can't stuff. keep up in this stage. So in this case, uh, the capitalism know, case, yeah. and the need should be aligned. Yeah. Mm. But then they, they can't make mm. those roads mm. merge. So hopefully... It's back to hard to predict TikTok, right? But there are there are advertising regulations that you... In Australia, you mm. can't advertise prescription medication. So right. I don't know how much is being cracked down on, you know, Australian influences. Or, I, I don't oh, know. Well, I don't yeah, know. Because, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a worldwide thing that seems to be going on. And people who want to find information on the internet are going to find it. I mean, yes, and yes. I would I'd be very surprised. Not going to make much of a difference in, in this case. I'd be very surprised mm. if our advertising legislation can keep up with TikTok yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's so, just so, not feasible. Yeah, and, and the monetization there is just, mm. I think the pol- initially no one on TikTok was making any money. money. Mm, okay, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And then people who were big on TikTok because mm-hmm. they could make those loot videos very effectively, the only way that they could get money from that was to try and move them over to YouTube with a right, clearer, okay. more transparent mm. monetization policy. Mm-hmm. That's a hard thing to do, right? Yeah. Now I think every platform, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, once you have a certain amount of following, you can get some monetization from it. So then that's yeah. definitely advertising. But well, I, think, I mean, I think the health and wellness space is, is huge. Mm. You know, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram. So yeah, regulations on these you know, spon- sponsored products or gifted products products and recommendations i think that's been cracked down in australia i mean i think i recently saw sunscreen was a bit of an issue so um you know say uh, beauty influencers who were gifted sunscreens to test and give their opinion on were technically not allowed to do that anymore because it was considered that they were paid in some way for their 
for their promotion or, right. or review of the product. Now, all I'm hearing when you're telling yeah. me that is just a criticism of the genre of video I make because I'm not getting any of this free sunscreen. <laughs> I'm not getting in any trouble with the regulators. I'm not on anyone's radar. <laughs> so I'm, I'm clearly making the wrong videos. The health and wellness is going to be the That's 2024 right. yep. thing. It's all in the protein powders and the... Yeah, no one's going to yes. take beef cake lessons from me. I'm sorry. I'm going to yeah. know my lane. Yeah, I'm going to know my <laughs> no lane. No one's gifting you any sunscreen. Yes. So so the drug companies clearly, again, their capitalistic agenda mm. or moral agenda mm-hmm. is aligned with the demand in this case. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it seems like the side effects are very manageable, whether it be diabetics or yeah. weight loss. So mm-hmm. it should be a feel-good story, right? Mm-hmm. This should have been like, hey, drug companies making this drug that has multiple purposes. Yeah, it's, it's great. It should be a great type story. Two diabetes. It can help with weight loss. But yeah. then it's now pitch this as zero-sum game of yeah. diabetics against people with body image issues and the mm-hmm. drug companies mm-hmm. making money from everyone but not enough money but how much money is too much money it's just like it's a, it's a huge mess right mm-hmm. yeah which comes to the idea that no one no one really knows anything and it's really hard to make these predictions yeah. i thought I, I thought i saw that a higher dose is actually i think in the u.s approved under a different name for treatment oh. um for weight loss right. but i think that's not the case in australia so well the the u.s yeah. regulatory environment is the wild mm-hmm. wild west that's uh, right but, yeah but often once you have FDA, mm. then everything kind of and so Yeah, down, in this so. case, it's actually the same drug, just at a high dose. So. But, but I think mm. I think Australia is well-renowned mm. for its very strict regulatory environment. Mm, that's I right, think yeah. that's the perception. Whether it is for your specific area mm-hmm. of work, I'm not mm-hmm. sure, or anyone else's area of work, but that's yeah. the perception we have. Mm. I think that, that's a good perception mm-hmm. that, to have. I guess if you were a, a drug entrepreneur, not, not a drug dealer, <laughs> I guess you, that, that's going to make you... If you're an entrepreneur <laughs> in the drug space, let's say, then it'd be Australia isn't a market you want to crack into because it's I'll like write not that there. on um, one of my next drug entrepreneur <laughs> paperwork. So if you're a drug entrepreneur, maybe this yeah. strict environment yeah. isn't to your advantage, but really for the consumer, it should be. Yeah. But in this case, it seems like all the right. wires are crossed. Yeah. You know, when I go through the airport, I actually put uh, researcher or government employee or you oh, know, yeah, on my forms because I'm I'm a little bit scared that if I write scientists, I'm going to be pulled out for some oh, kind of oh, drug sure. screening. Yeah, sure, that, that makes sense. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know. It's a strange paranoia to have, but it, yeah, weird, researcher I think is the one I normally yeah. Right, right, right. But when, when yeah. I was younger i was very insecure about what to say mm. and uh, because when you say scientists people the follow-up question is always like on what and that's right that's the fear of every phd student yeah. having to explain what they research right so i was like and you're paranoid. Going, do, do you have two hours <laughs> yes and it's like you straight away start hating yourself because you don't care about what you do enough to explain to make someone else care about that's it right. Right? So it you're takes just, too no, long to make them care so, about what it. I, I think mm. I, I think i just i think i defaulted the saying because like uh, molecular biology or microbiology. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's quite specific. That's pretty specific, mm, right? I think mm. at some point I just kind of just said biology. Mm-hmm. Or I think I said cancer mm-hmm. at one point because one of the things I was studying was very vaguely yep. related to cancer. Yeah. Uh, now that I'm teaching, it's a, l- a little easier to communicate, right? So yeah, that's right. That's professor, that easy. teacher, it's a little easier, but yeah. Yeah. I also have this sort of uh, secret fear that I'll have some kind of chemicals from the lab on my clothes that haven't washed out that Ooh. they're going to pick up in the drug screening test. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the stuff we work with is highly highly flammable but yeah just yeah. i don't know but hopefully you're showering regularly to yeah the well you'll be good. pleased to know <laughs> hopefully you can smell that i've been showering regularly okay but, not, uh, not from yeah. here we're not from there you're far enough away so that's okay we should probably move on to the next all right so speaking of making poor predictions yes and big entities unable to keep up brings me to the next segment which we've very glibly named whose job is it anyway which is our recurring segment hopefully recurring segment on changes in the employability sector around again science 
science, tech, and education. So this is the article, but really it's a whole series of articles. There's three that all kind of talk about the same thing. Uh, and the first one is CNET, which is uh, depending on your mileage, you may read regularly, or you may not. They are a large online sort of conglomerate publication. They talk about technology news a lot. And very recently, last week, I don't know when I'll edit this, but uh, so in, in mid-January 2023, we found out that a bunch of articles that they released in late 2022 were all written by artificial intelligence in the first instance. But essentially, they used the AI chatbot to answer very specific questions about mm -hmm. the topic with those articles mm -hmm. and i think it was talking about financial instruments that were moving very quickly pretty and complicated it was super yep. high mm -hmm. and then super low and it was really complicated so mm -hmm. i think they smartly i think used the productivity to an ai to help them do the initial research yeah and then rigorously fact-checked is what they said <laughs> rigorously fa a team of humans rigorously so fact-checked fact <laughs> <laughs> which, which I think is is interesting, but also uh, I mean, it, yeah, it's scary, right? But mm. but I think you kind of have to disclose that, right? I, I think it should yeah. definitely be disclosed. Yeah, yeah, because because um, this is coming from this article is from Engadget, but also other big online uh, platforms like Diverge. And it was yep. a reporter. Hey, we're paying our human employees to write these tech stories, <laughs> but CNET, our competitor, presumably, <laughs> is just using AI and not even disclosing that it's AI, yep. right? Yeah, CNET is using AI to write. Financial explaining is nearly 75 times since November. So that's just November 2020. 75 times. 75 articles wow. since November. So, hey, the, and they're uh, all what finance and complicated, uh, well, complicated to us. <laughs> So, Definitely. So we're yes. not in the finance space. No, out, not at all. Right, not at all. Because yeah. if we were, we would not be in this business because it doesn't make any financial sense in any in any respect. But yeah, I mean, this is just the articles that they've found out so mm. far, right? Mm -hmm. That's not to say. Yeah, that's right. And these are like public facing mm -hmm. artifacts of work, right? Mm. What did you say? Oh, but who's to say like more internal workflows haven't been automated? Like this is like the most public facing. Whose decision thing. it was to... Mm. to start doing this because recently chat gpt is the right yeah um, is the version of that ai everyone's that talking everyone's talking about right now mm. uh, and it comes from open ai mm -hmm. yeah so they're the company that have investors from all over the place including uh, elon musk mm -hmm. and okay. microsoft right? right so they like two agents with seemingly wildly different dispositions so elon is very unpredictable mm -hmm. and microsoft is very kind of historically stable they're aligned with big business big enterprises their software is designed to be used by professionals in very reliable predictable ways mm -hmm. so the fact that they're both heavily invested but mm -hmm. microsoft being one of the there's biggest something to it clearly, yeah, I think, yeah i think the deal that's not yet finalized like 10 mm -hmm. billion or something right. investment out of a 29 billion valuation of open ai big money big mm -hmm. business all of these people are thinking this is essentially the next big thing in technology right the thing that you realize when you first use it is that there's no fancy anything mm -hmm. it's just you log on you sign up and then you type your question into a box and it comes back and gives yeah, you yeah because i have to admit i haven't I haven't had a play with chat gpt i've heard things about it but right. i haven't really if you see any new app they try to get you with the bright colors and the sound effects right, and okay. kind of stuff, but they've gone the opposite route it's just very unassuming it's like it's an old school chat room okay literally just a chat room and the other thing is that it's Way different than how AI has been depicted up until this point, mm -hmm. right? If you ever saw that movie Ex Machina, which is like a crazy movie, right? So, so yeah, I have seen it a long time ago. Yeah, so I mean, they got Alicia Vikander to play the mm -hmm. manifestation of AI, which fooled everyone. Spoiler, fooled everyone. The movie that that she spoiler alert. The scary part wasn't that she was good at hiding that she was not human. The, mm. the scary part was that even when it was very obvious that she wasn't human, it would still were able to convince humans to do their bidding right that's right to convince them to sympathize with them and one of the characters let her escape that 
that That's have right, yeah. robots or like lines of code, but this is not that at all. It's just mm, like a, a just blank an, screen with, an interface. with a little interface. That's kind of why it's so appealing, I think. They've gone that really interesting Yeah, way. of yeah. course. Yeah. Is this something you suspect they've used something like ChatGPT to prompt it, write an article about... Yeah, this yeah. particular topic. So, so, so mm. the easiest way I recommend for anyone mm. listening to this is just go have a play with it. Uh, mm-hmm. At the moment, it's so we're in January 2023. It's free, mm-hmm. although it's frequently crashing because the number of users. Right. It's the fastest platform ever to reach a million um, users, oh, wow. like okay. ever. The fact that they're so accessible would mean that people were able to use it and we're testing it. And in this case, Cena has been co-opting it as part of its professional workflow and hopefully not replacing writers and writers' jobs, but enhancing their productivity on their behalf. Where it's kind of come in is not where anyone predicted AI would come in to take people's jobs. The paradigm shift that I was always taught was that when automation comes in, it's going to be the blue collar jobs that have hands-on repeatable skills Mm -hmm. that would be automated away with robots. Right. If you're a white-collar job or an intellectual or a cognitively demanding kind of role that you're doing, you're analyzing things, you're thinking about things, maybe automated away, but that takes a high level. Parts of it anyway. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. right. But but that has a high level of sophistication. Mm -hmm. And if you're an independent artist who's creating music and art and poems, that sense of ineffable sort of spark will never be replaced right so that that's how it was always pitched to me but it's gone exactly the the inverse of that trend where dolly um dolly 2 is up to the second version now where you just ask it for photo realistic images and it creates brand new artwork right from scratch mm. right and you can ask it to write poems i've asked it to write it's not a very good poem but maybe that's my problem I, I don't think I'm, i'd be a good judge of that so no 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 mm. no and you can ask it to compose music for mm-hmm. you in, in a certain mood oh, right. right like okay. it might be a classical acoustic piece in the style of this person can you give me a graphic that communicates uh, melancholy in the style of 8-bit sort of sprite characters like so you can be pretty specific with it Mm. and then it gives you like presumably original art right like new pieces of art so people who work in the areas of let's say photography visual artists or graphic designers whose job is to make custom graphics and get paid well to do it because that's a creative task that's very difficult to replace seemingly overnight it was being talked about as well why why do we need to have a graphic designer or a visual artist i I never would have predicted that that would be the kind of field that you'd see no encroached upon by by ai no um, no no never never in a million years not, um, not at all and, and it's it's crazy that that's that's the first thing it came for have you played with it to generate art or? yeah yeah i played yeah. a lot with it certain aspects of it are, are really impressive especially mm. when you give it a prompt i think uh, you say give me a 3d render or give me a photo okay. realistic image if you give it those prompts then it will, it will create something custom uh, most of them look absolutely crazy like, right, I was going to ask, does it look like something where you went, what, what is this? Or I mean, some art is like that. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's the um, thing. Like, know, who, who am I the, to judge? What, in the eye of the beholder. Um, but, but let's say you were writing an article written by AI. So you work for a publication that hypothetically uses <laughs> AI to write its articles. And halfway through the article, you say, well, I want a stock image here mm-hmm. to represent how people are feeling stressed uh, financially. 
right? So let's say it's about a financial instrument. Mm-hmm. I want to know more about it. I want a stock image of someone who's uh, short on money or feeling stressed about money. And you can go to the big players like Adobe Stock and look for one and, right. and pay for that fee to use the image. You can go out there and hire a photographer to, to do something in studio. Or now apparently you can ask AI to, hey, give me an image of a person feeling stressed about money and it will give you something that will communicate that in some way, right? So how it's been tuned is really interesting, right? Because I guess of all the things to release, they could have released, it turns out, OpenAI has all of these tricks in his back, right? All of these different elements of it. But that's the thing they chose to release first. Well, that's, that's what everyone heard of first anyway, like this, the fact that it's, isn't it? that, that the, it's the creative mm. element that mm. can be automated away as a kind of a proof of principle, as a bit of a flex, right? To, to kind of prove that the paradigm shift is, is reversed and all of your predictions about automation are wrong. There are some seams that are showing now because a lot of artists are finding that uh, their art is being used as inspiration, let's say, for the AI-generated art. And in many cases, if people have a watermark on their work or a signature. Oh, we saw this and there were sort of remnants of that still on the AI-generated like, images. Yeah, or, or like just consistently the bottom right corner of these images is like blocked away or mm. replaced with something, right? So, so how much it's taking creative license and how much it's just straight out plagiarizing visually is very unclear. And there's a lot of artists who are basically finding that their artwork is used to... Terrible, a, terrible for them. Certainly like, train the AI, whether or not yeah. the AI is spitting... Just that artwork back is, is a different story. Yeah. But, you know, part of their work is generating something unique and interesting and then just to have that heavily leaned upon. How could this affect, let's say, your job, right? So, so you work managing clinical research, not to give your boss any ideas to automate your job away, <laughs> but, but you, have to, you have to think creatively, right? Like, so can you use this technology to make you more efficient or are there aspects of your job that you should think about delegating because it will be automated and if you're spending a lot of effort on that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and not learning new things that may be a little harder to automate or can't be automated, right. maybe that's a better use of your time, a better better use of resources. Mm-hmm. Right? So are there any aspects of your job that you think fit into the scheme? I guess the, the writing is an interesting point, whether you could have it say... I don't know, write an article or write an application. People with science backgrounds, we know that you have to take everything with a grain of salt. I would be very, very worried that it would pull from something that was not reliable mm. information uh, to make certain conclusions. I think I don't, I, I don't personally have major ethical issues with its use, provided it's done in the right way and it's, you know, rigorously fact-checked. Um, or used as a a very at a very baseline level to start something but it's scary it's scary it's scary and and in my area of uh of assessment Mm. and students and the temptation to use it to quote-unquote cheat is is through the roof now uh, assuming that it stays free for the next semester at least then students can access it Uh, and i don't think the plagiarism checkers right now are anywhere near as advanced as because because it's it's generative right so what, what it does is it creates a word and then it uses the previous words to predict what the next words would be. So it's not like spitting out some kind of pre-written thing. It's kind of, it's it's the natural language model, as they say, right? So okay. the AI is using your keywords and thinking of the first word and then using that word and your prompt to predict what the next series of words are, like mm-hmm. a human would to conceive language mm-hmm. when they're thinking of a sentence to say, right? Mm-hmm. So that generative model of text doesn't actually give you reproducible pre-written sections that consistently so if you put that through the classical plagiarism checker it wouldn't be able to detect that right not at all consistently Mm. not to Mm. say there aren't other ways of checking it right i've put a few of my exam questions through it to see what it comes up with oh have you that's interesting and uh how did it go it's great for breadth 
in terms okay. of the coverage of mm-hmm. lots of different topics. Mm-hmm. Like everything it's saying okay. is on point, right? So relevance seems to be what it's tuned for right now. To, hey, here are all the things that might be relevant. But we know that it's that's not enough, right? Like you, you have to then build on top of those topics or choose a subset of those to then invest a bit more of your time and in, in, in focus on your work and, and research. But really when I'm grading papers and I'm grading exams, like breadth might be all I can afford to grade students on at a certain level. You know, maybe asking them to think more at a higher plane with more complexity and constructing new understanding. Maybe that's the most asked for like a first year student in uni yeah, college. Yeah, of course. It's, it's a scary thought, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's scary. So uh, I, I have no idea what I'm going to tell my students about it this semester. I think I have to say something I about think, it. Yeah, it's good to acknowledge it. But if you want to do this for a thousand students to design assessment, that can't be, be so hard, by AI, I imagine. Very, very unfeasible, right? It's not scalable. Speaking of not scalable, Amazon has cut... Uh, 18,000 or more jobs and anticipate to cut around that number. And the nature of the types of jobs that are cutting is interesting because, uh, again, if you're watching this and you're a student, like we have jobs and we're contemplating the impact tech and AI is going to have on our jobs. But if you don't yet have a job, I don't know how you're supposed to feel. Are you supposed to feel motivated? What do you do? Are you supposed to feel motivated by it? I don't really know. Like what what are you doing? What have you like in the final degree, final year of a degree that is very easy to automate, which I, I don't know what that would be. What Amazon is saying is that they're, they, they're cutting about 6% of their workforce, of their 300,000 person corporate workforce. Corporate, okay. Right, so they're saying that it's within corporate. I don't think that's necessarily uh, within their warehouses, within their shipping, um, although they do have a lot of uh, attempts to automate that part of the process as well. Uh, but again, it, it's, it's different, isn't it? It's like it's not at the quote-unquote lower end of the labor market, the, the blue-collar hands-on side. Maybe it's just the components of building robots are more expensive and you have to have sort of uh, ROIs. I don't know. So are they, are they indicating this is due to automation at that upper level or...? Well, I mean, it, there's a looming recession of not a full-on recession. Well, that's right. But then, I mean, and I'm no, I'm no economist, but I would kind of assume that would affect all aspects of the of the business rather than one particular yeah, section. And, and, if, if people are overall purchasing less products or, you know, you'd expect that to sort of hit at the warehouse end. So, or, so, so that's really curious. Surely they would have played with their in-house version of AI long before ChatGPT, right? And they would, would assume so. They would have access to this kind of stuff and maybe the maybe they saw the writing and said, well, if we can automate away, say, well, here's 6% of the corporate workforce. Yeah, you wonder what it's uh, what it's secretly influencing don't you? Much of the conversation in my area has been like, hey, students will use this to cheat. That's not the risk here, right? The risk is big enterprises will use the system to cheat. And by cheat, I mean just become business as usual. And then that affects everyone and everything. That's right. You know, whereas, whereas students, if they're doing it, then they, they're probably costing themselves something in the long term because then the value of their work is, is, is zero. Right, if it can be automated, the value of their work and the value of their intelligence is is net zero. So it's of course not yes. just Amazon. I mean, Twitter famously, or the Twitter's is its own kettle of fish, is going through some crazy ups and downs. So it's it's five, eleven thousand ish numbers are very unclear. It's its own kettle of fish. Facebook through its metaverse, through its VR goggles, they're hemorrhaging and they're they're looking at a lot of stuff as well. Is that tied to the fact they're losing money, or is that tied to the fact that automation is coming and AI can? do a lot of the tasks that they're predicting yeah, to do. Yeah, know. it's it's a really, really quickly moving landscape. I was going to say just back on that, back on that student aspect, we have to remember that 
as this becomes more commonplace, it's going to be used by people in their jobs as well. Mm. So, I mean, we need to be thinking about, in, in my humble opinion, working around it and 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 how it may be used in everyday life. Things is important. So this is something that will probably, as time goes on, be embraced more. So we, sh- we should think about how it will be used and working around that in, in terms of examination. And I want to have first know, mover advantage, right? Mm-hmm. So I've, I've already started using it in mm-hmm. my workflow when, when I can access it. It's always offline because right. there's so many people on it. I'm, I'm going to so need to get onto it. The thing that it's trained and tuned to do currently is to try and convince you that it's human, right? Convince you that it's, it's able to come up with original things mm-hmm. and it does that by connecting to as many people as possible in different genres. And so that's essentially a communication, a PR person really, right? And that's the thing I have the biggest trouble with in my job because I explain a difficult concept to a first-year student versus a third-year student versus a very highly intelligent and maybe a little bit of jaded uh, medical student or a PhD student, right? It's like all these different things, right? In different categories. And, and then so, so sometimes I give, I have a day where I've got uh, six hours of classes and every single hour is to a completely different type of student. Right. And it could be on very similar topics or completely different topics. And my brain is just fried after half of that because I've had to modulate it so often. And so if there's any part of this that I can ask AI to help me set up the framework or the parameters of, of this new target demographic, that would really help. And in terms of things like making YouTube videos, uh, thumbnails that are attention grabbing, like what needs to be in okay. it about this topic or a video title, like how do you design a thing to have maximum reach and convince as many people that it's worth their time. I mean, I think that's currently what the algorithm is tuned towards, right? right? Yeah. It's in that phase of the rollout where it needs to convince people that it can do the thing and, and break through the connections, right? And also it can write code amazingly. Like you can ask it to write scripts for anything. Um, it's actually amazing uh, in yeah. my field. Yeah, so in, in terms auto- of automation, of, automate this analysis yeah, for me, or, analysis, yeah, or fantastic. Set, set them out of box, out because of that is a very laborious part of scientist jobs. So I mean, that aspect is fantastic. And not every scientist is a computer scientist or not a software engineer, right? Yeah. So so coding is a quite uh, skill for sure. It's a quite skill, yeah. So really, really quickly moving, which brings me to our last segment of our first episode, episode one, which is uh, crossover of the week. ChatGPT can be used to detect early Alzheimer's. Uh, and the idea here is that uh, part of the diagnosis of Alzheimer's is around uh, speech patterns, speech behavior, like the pauses, the intonations. And essentially, some early work has shown that if you take the transcripts of people who are suspected of being in early onset dementia or Alzheimer's, coupled with uh, recordings of what they're saying, and you submit it and you t- give it to a tuned version of AI, they could basically predict and confirm the Alzheimer diagnosis through the more official diagnosis pipeline, right? Because when you train a data set, you've got to know whether it's a false positive or a false negative or a true test result of being positive for that disease or illness. The hit rate was 80%. So they, they get it accurately okay. predicting mm. whether this person has Alzheimer's based on transcripts of what they're saying and recordings of what they're saying 80% of the time, right? Interesting. Okay. So this, this hits everything. So it's not just the tech, it's not just productivity, it's really clinical Clinical. research. And and the the companion piece to this is that people are using AI to pass the medical licensing interesting exam to US. And I think it's Mm. not like an amazing, super high tier score, but it's enough to pass. So it's 
cognitively able to respond to all these clinical scenarios that they throw these right. people in. Some accelerated use of it within our context of like healthcare and, and biomedical medical research, mm-hmm. right? I think it's fantastic, actually. You know, healthcare access can be a, a massive issue. So if someone is able to routinely have this test, then they're not having to go and see their GP or specialist or, you know, and they're able to access this kind of thing. I think that's great especially in terms of preventative health and early diagnosis i think it has some fantastic implications so more accurate than web webmd or something like that right yeah yes. super supercharged <laughs> version of webmd we've all been on it <laughs> supercharged webmd yeah i guess my question again not being in that field uh, is 80 percent positive diagnosis is that, a, is that a good figure because yeah in my area that's not you know even if it's for an early indication of something that, you know, maybe you don't want it to be the Mm. be all and end all of testing, but as an indicator or as some kind of pre-test that someone may take to decide whether they need to follow up and have further testing done, yep. then then it's it's quite powerful in from that aspect. And it depends on the the stakes of that test result, right? What what are, what are the outcomes? What's, what's right. the risk mm-hmm. profile? So mm-hmm. we talk about false positives and false negatives all the time. Right, right? yeah. What, what does that mean? False positive is when you get a test result that indicates something that's not actually the real result. Mm. You know, a common example may be, say, a COVID rat test coming up with the positives for having COVID when you may not have it. I think that's actually quite rare mm. in the case of the of the COVID testing. A false negative is much more common in that case. And a false negative is when uh, you're, you're testing and seeing that you don't have a particular condition or result when it should actually be positive for it. Right. You, know, you want a true positive or a right. true negative. That's you right. don't want and a false a positive. Of, we call them internal controls that we would use in an experiment yeah. to to test this kind of thing. When we do our testing, the gold standard for diagnosing, let's say, a pathogen, you want like 95 That's to right. 98%, yeah. right? From a molecular level, perspective. Mm. Because let's say it's a false positive mm. and you, you said, hey, you do have Alzheimer's. Right. The first thing you would do is, well, let's go and do more testing, right? Yes. So that's not a, yes. not a bad thing. And let's say if it's a false negative, then that's maybe where the there's a bit more of a risk. risk but Both obviously you would not want to have, but yeah. uh, personally I would rather have a false positive, do some follow-up testing right. and make sure you're capturing the whole at-risk population. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, sure. Okay. Even though it's not, not, not fantastic. No, it's not fantastic. Obviously, you know, from, from a... to be told something they, you know, they have some some disease that they don't have but if it prompts further testing and then you go from there i'd I'd rather capture the population oh you're so pragmatic i'd rather be in denial to be honest i'd rather not not know at all no (laughs) obviously managing it you want to know but you know neither situation is is great but you're talking about like talking to webmd or just typing into google Mm. and then it gives you Mm. a diagnosis that's that's pretty good i could see how maybe it would then form part of routine testing you know once a year you sit down you have a conversation with this interface and it, it sends some updated health information to your GP for follow-up or not mm. and just becomes sort of part of a screening to to detect at-risk individuals. So I think from that perspective, it could be quite powerful. But yeah, again, I wouldn't want anything AI as the sole diagnostic tool. The dirty secret is that a lot of scientists just hate new technology. <laughs> they don't trust it. They have trust issues. Right, right. Because they know that innovation within their own field is so kind of on a knife's edge. Right? Yeah, it's exciting in some aspects, but we can be superstitious. We've gone on long enough, I think, for our first episode. For those of you listening, this 
should be on all the podcasting platforms or be in all the feeds across any podcast player of choice we are filming this for youtube so if you're watching this on youtube it will be there as well uh, this is a rather new venture this is literally episode one so hopefully i aim to do this uh, every two weeks and eventually if we see that it's productive for us learning about these news articles we might do up at the weekly but that's kind of the release schedule we're aiming for statistically speaking if we make a past episode seven amanda oh if we I love a, some stats. Right. So, so <laughs> go on. Apparently, most podcasts die. And oh, they fail. okay. Okay. So, All we're right. really optimistic. Seven. Here. And a seven is the average number of episodes you make before you realize, hey, this is not okay. worth my time. Right. Mm-hmm. So, if we make it to episode eight, we should have a little mini celebration because <laughs> we've clearly yeah. mm-hmm. found a way of making it sustainable mm-hmm. and okay. found some value in it. People, Even if it's just for us. Hopefully, anyone who's listening finds value in it for them as well. I'm Jack Wayne. I'm Amanda. This is the Crossover Connections, and we'll see you and connect with you at the next episode.